Hello, friends. There's lots of interesting things coming up in the Stoic Coffee community, so make sure that you sign up for my newsletter on my website at stoic.coffee. You can also follow me on Twitter at stoiccoffee and on Instagram at stoic.coffee, and you can find my LinkedIn page by searching for Stoic Coffee Break on LinkedIn. Now, I also wanted to let you know that I'm starting a mastermind for tech entrepreneurs as the world of tech is accelerating, and I've had people reaching out to me for a group grounded in Stoic principles. I'll be your facilitator as we tackle some of the big questions in tech using the tools of Stoicism. I have a few spots left for senior tech entrepreneurs and decision makers to join me for a one-hour bi-weekly session. I'll be interviewing candidates to form a tight group for the first cohort of five people, plus myself. Now, if you're interested in joining this, please reach out to me at masterminds at stoic.coffee. Now, again, that's masterminds at stoic.coffee. Thanks again, and thank you so much for listening to the podcast, and I appreciate your support. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Stoic Coffee Break. My name is Eric Cloward, and today I'm doing something a little bit different than my usual thing. I try, I'm trying to roll some new stuff into the podcast to make it a little bit more interesting than just listening to me uh, kind of yammer on for 10, 15 minutes once a week and trying to add some interviews with people that I find interesting who I think can bring some different takes and ideas into the world of Stoicism. And today we're going to be talking with Trevor Yarish. And <clears throat> I met Trevor about a year ago. Uh, he lives about four hours south of me in Grants Pass. And he contacted me on LinkedIn and we just started talking. And every time we talked, it ended up being about a four to six hour <laughs> um, video chat because uh, we just kind of got along um, really, really well. And so... And I visited him down at Grants Pass. Uh, he was very, very kind and hospitable. We went out to lunch at a great place down there. Um, and he's a small business owner down there. And I'm not going to talk too much about him because I'm going to let him introduce himself. Um, but he's got some great ideas about stoicism. And so we're just going to have a conversation about who knows what. We're just going to step into it and see where it goes. So go ahead and introduce yourself, Trevor. Well, first off, thank you for having me on, Eric. This is, uh, it's an honor. I've been a fan of yours for, well, pretty much, I mean, shortly after you started the podcast, I think I started listening. I definitely have listened to all the episodes because I went back when I started running out of them. But um, so big fan, uh, really appreciate what you've brought to the space. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, that, so first off, uh, in my bio line, I guess it would be fan of, of, the Stoic Coffee Break. Um, I even have the mug to prove it. So, <laughs> ta-da. There we, there we go. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm a, a, a husband. I'm a father of two boys. Um, and uh, I, I'm a business owner, entrepreneur. I, I own a software company uh, um, that, that is a consulting company. And um, I also own a co-working space and a venue and a recording studio. And, and so it's a, it's the, the venue and coworking and recording. Those are all in one space as an offering for the community. And, um, and so, yeah, so it's a, it's a kind of an eclectic mix, uh, of, of things. And, and my background, I did marketing and, and I, you know, worked for a number of companies before I started my own companies, but, 
Um, and then I stumbled upon Stoicism. Oh, it's been a handful of years ago, probably probably eight years ago now is when I really started to study it uh, as a philosophy. And um, it had come across my plate before based on, you know, some of the names in Stoicism, Seneca and some of the uh, Marcus Aurelius, the, you know, I, I'd, I'd come across them in my studies over the years, but I didn't really lock into this philosophy of Stoicism until about eight years ago. And, um, and yeah, it's, it's, it's been a remarkable um, and probably one of the more powerful things in my life that has helped me to reshape how I approach life and how life impacts me and, and how I allow life, you know, uh, how I basically interact with life uh, from a, from a real high level and how I uh, analyze my interaction with life. And uh, it's fascinating, you know, all those dynamics we were talking about uh, being a business owner, being a husband, being a father, being a community member. um, It's just had a drastic impact on all of those dynamics. Very cool. Very cool. It's been good knowing you. I know that we kind of lost touch for a little bit there and things have been a bit chaotic COVID, I think, has kind of thrown a monkey wrench in kind of everybody's lives. And it's interesting now as everybody kind of acts like it's over, and yet we see these resurgences happening over and over. And so I think it's something that's going to be with us for quite some time. And I think it's just going to, be, going to become the new normal, which is kind of scary in a way, but, uh, but such is life. Such is life. <laughs> I guess to uh, kind of get started... Um, what was it that originally drew you into Stoicism? I mean, what was, what was the thing that, that brought you into that idea more than, say, existentialism or cynicism or any of the other old philosophies or even some of the more modern philosophers like Nietzsche or Kierkegaard or anything along those lines? Mm-hmm. Well, I think, I think uh, it, it's the accessibility of it. There's, you know, while there's a lot of complexities, there, it, the core is very simple to break down and understand. And, and, you know, and I think that was, it was, it was how approachable it was and how practical it was to put into place in my, you know, to, to try to practice, I guess. Um, and, and that, that pure concept of really understanding the, the very small grouping of things that I actually control in the, in the dynamic of the world. And, um, and, and to really lean into owning those things and focusing wholeheartedly on, on those things, on what, you know, the, the power that comes with the concept that we are the ones who assign meaning to everything, that, that was uh, something that just, it, it, it was something that was just so profound that, when, when I, you know, when I started practicing that to say, Hey, I realize in the moment I reacted in a certain way or something hit me in a certain way. And it meant something to me that was maybe really catastrophic in some fashion. And just to, just to understand that that feeling I was having, I was the one creating that feeling, not the thing, not the, you know, whatever took place. And that, that I could simply decide that that's not how I wanted to feel in that moment. I could decide to reframe what that meant to me. And that was mine to own. I, it was, you know, it was like, it's the ultimate 
destroyer of victim mentality, right? And, um, and that I think was the lure. I think that was the thing, like when I actually experienced that and spent some time with that in my life as it, as it was, uh, as I was really trying to practice it, it, it was just, it drew me in and I decided to keep going deeper and deeper and really become more aware of the opportunities, which is constant to reframe meaning for myself. And then as a result of that, then once you've been able to own that, then the ability to own the reciprocation of that, which is, and then what do I do? How do I act? How do I, you know, what are my actions as a result of what something means to me? And to own those two dynamics and to, and, and then the, con, I guess like for me, I wouldn't say it was easy to own that stuff. It took time to practice really um, being constantly aware, it, it, it would be something that it was like re in reflection, I would be aware of something and try and reframe in retrospect, I guess. But as I got better at more real time assigning of meaning and being just aware that I'm assigning that meaning and making sure I'm assigning the meaning that is important to me, and then deciding on what my actions are. And as I get better at, at, at making those choices in real time, um, then the challenge becomes letting go of the rest of the things. And, and, and that's the thing that I honestly is, uh, is, is probably the most difficult is to let go of the, um, the things that I'm not in control of. Uh, and that one takes a constant meditative practice to, to continually let go of the other things. And I think the reason why it's so hard is because, uh, relinquishing control is hard. Um, that, you know, uh, for someone, at least with my, <laughs> my nature is like, you know, um, I like, I like owning those first two pieces. I like the idea that I get to assign the meaning and I get to decide what I do and how I act and how I show up in the world. And, you know, but I really have no control over how you feel about how I show up or what you think about what I do. And, um, or how you react to the meaning I assign to something, you know, that's also been a, an issue in the past, uh, that I've faced. So, so I think that's it. It was, it was, uh, getting back to your question. I think it was really just the accessibility of it. It was so easy to pick a piece of it up, like the core piece and put it into practice and try it out and feel the benefit of that, you know, um, that philosophical change in approach. So back on what you said, yeah, I, I think that that was what you talked about as far as, you know, what kind of drew you in was very much the same thing for me. It was kind of like um, those aha moments of, oh, wait a second, this this makes sense. Oh, my gosh, how can I, how have I gotten this far in life without understanding the basic idea that my perspective on something is why I react the way that I do, why I think that this situation is like X, when upon reflection, I could look back at it later and see the situation is more like Y, simply be just simply changing your perspective on it. And for me, that was just very much some of those like aha moments, like how have I gone this long in my life without this basic, simple, clear, rational way of looking at things? And the simplicity of it is actually what drew me in as well, because it was like, okay, this 
this makes sense. And it just, and while the principles are incredibly simple, just like anything, even if the principles are really simple, the mastery of them is exceptionally difficult. And, you know, because you're never going to be perfect at it. You're always going to be refining that. You're always going to be improving on that. You know, it's, it's kind of like martial arts. You might be able to throw a punch really well, but refining that punch is still going to take you years to make sure that it is that at that level of perfection that you want it to. And yeah, you may be able to connect with somebody with that punch, but to make it so that you can connect with them every single time, you know, that, that you don't throw any missed punches, for example, you know, kind of like if you took the Bruce Lee analogy, you know, he's like, don't fear the man who, you know, has mastered 10,000 kicks, fear the man who has mastered one kick 10,000 times. It, it's, it's that idea of one simple principle, one simple thing, but years and years of perfection of that one simple thing you know it's it's you're never going to be perfect at it but you are you're always striving for that perfection and for me it just really made sense of why i acted the way in a lot of situations that i did which has been very frustrating a very frustrating thing in my life because of the way that i grew up and the trauma that i i grew up in in my life it, it definitely gave me a a way to to look at that trauma in a very different way and to actually start to make some inroads into understanding, okay, why, why am I so reactive about things? Oh, it's because my, the way that I'm thinking about this situation that this person is trying to attack me or trying to hurt me based upon my past experience, that's what it felt like. And then learning how to sit with that and be like, okay, they're really not doing that. I am just viewing it that way because that's how it was done in my family or it was done in my church or done by my dad or something like that. And those patterns that my brain thinks that it sees really aren't there. And so I found the stoicism for me is, has been helpful for unwinding a lot of those things. It's still incredibly challenging and there's still plenty of times where I find that trauma pops up and kind of derails my better thing. But but really, like you said, I, I think the key to that is that awareness. And until you can have a simple framework for putting those things in, your awareness isn't even going to be there. And you're going to continue to do all of those things that you did before. It's kind of like how Jung said that um, I stumbled on this quote a few months ago, and I really, really like it. Um, he said, until you make the unconscious conscious, you will call it fate and it will rule your life. Mm. Oh, so that's and, good. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. Yeah. And for me, it was just like when I read that, I'm like, oh, wow. Yeah. Because how many of us are walking around with these unconscious things and ideas? And, and again, mm -hmm. like you talked about being able to see something from perspective and turning around and frame and reframing that has has immense power. Um, but it's incredibly challenging to do so. Um, what are things that you do in your life that help you to do that? Mm -hmm. I mean, are there any any phrases, mantras, practices um, that you do that help you to, I, to especially in the moment, yeah. that's one of the hardest times to do yeah, that. Yeah, so, so part of it was also reframing and making a decision as to what it means to me when I am triggered by something, right? And so, and it used to be like, I would kind of beat myself up because I want to be better at, at mastering that, you know? Um, and, and I think that, um, now when something triggers me, 
I see it as this like, ooh, exciting opportunity to dive into some place else I have yet to really master yet. Like, I, you know, it's like, okay, this is a, a thing. Like, I get to review this and go through this and understand what was the trigger? Like, what is that? And it's something that, uh, I mean, for the most part, I when I write them down and I start to correlate them, it's not about that one moment, right? It's about there's some live wire associated that was flicked in that moment that, you know, there's a nerve that, that was touched and, and be able to get to the root of that nerve. But I, so that's, I think the thing is first off, first and foremost, it's that I'm, it's, I'm like on this excited, um, uh, it, it's, it's almost like a, like I'm, uh, I'm, I'm on this hunt for, you know, these, these, uh, all, all the edges where those triggering edges are. And um, so there's an awareness, there's an active awareness throughout my day of when do I feel like my blood pressure spike or something that hits me like that. So that's one piece. The second piece is um, I've worked to get better at, um, and I've learned this from, well, my wife is incredibly good at it. And the uh, COO of one of my companies is also incredibly good at this. And that is to take a beat, Right. So anytime I feel anything that's a twinge, that's not just the, my, deme- my calm, controlled demeanor. If I feel it's to take a beat, take a breath in that because uh, there's an initial reaction, which is that subconscious reaction. That's that trigger. There's the, and if I don't take a beat, then that is what is presented. That's, that turns into action as reaction. That's a reaction, Right. And so by being able, like taking that beat, taking that breath, creating a moment of silence, I, I allow myself to identify that moment. And then I get to like wrestle with it for a minute. And sometimes it's uncomfortable because someone else is like, like if they're not talking anymore and I'm just sitting there, it can create some discomfort for them. But I'm not in control of that. What I'm in control of is, what am I going to do right now? How am I going to react right now? And I'm not so much concerned about that in that moment. What I'm most concerned in that moment is what, why is this like, I'm allowing this to take on a meaning that I'm not assigning with my conscious mind, right? It's being assigned by my subconscious mind and not that it's the enemy at all. It's, it's just like our conscious and subconscious are beautiful partners in life. And Um, but at the same time, sometimes there, there's a, uh, there's a, a misalignment inside of us. And that's where they, that's where triggers show up is misalignments with our, something that's inside, something that is in our subconscious mind, a feeling, uh, uh, trauma in all the, all the different ways that our subconscious mark marks time and marks experiences and, uh, and then my current present self, the way that I, uh, I see myself in the world. And there's a misalignment sometimes as when, as to how those two show up in a moment. Right. And, and so it's a moment to take a breath and first like care for myself. Cause there's a pain there, something that trig that was triggered. And so I take, take that breath. I like, care for myself, care for that subconscious peace and then I get to consciously reframe it. Now, what I have learned to do also is not just try to like, 
you know, cover it up and make it something better and make it mean something different to myself and work through that. Uh, I will revisit that later writing or thinking or talking out loud with a, a friend or, or, or my wife or, you know, I'll, I'll be sure to get back to it because, um, the goal isn't to just decide I'm going to make it mean something different if it's a, if it's something that is subconscious and is going to resurface. I want to really understand that and work through that and, and find, refine that alignment between subconscious and, and conscious. And, and that's truly how pro, I think that progress is made. You know, I made progress in how I react in the world by taking that beat and just being able to make better decisions in the moment as opposed to reacting and get to choose my actions. But then I make progress for my future self by taking that time to find that alignment between how I want to be show up and how I want this to what I want this to mean to me as opposed to what it currently is meaning to me at some subconscious level that's not aligned. Um, and I have a therapist that's, that's incredible. Um, she, she works on a lot of different levels, NLP timeline therapy. There's a lot of, she's, she's pretty incredible, but, um, I get to work out some of this with her, which is, I, I would say for anybody, having somebody who's knowledgeable on a lot of these topics and, and really keen on the conscious and subconscious and the interactions and assigning meaning and philosophy. Like it's nice to have, this is why I love talking to you, Eric, to be honest. It's like, we all have our issues, but we also like work really hard to develop our set of tools to work on issues. So when you can, unpack something with somebody else and they can reflect stuff back to you in a way that you're maybe not seeing it or endorsing a way that you are seeing it, but helping you see it a little bit, you know, it's like, that's so valuable. So yeah, anyways. no, I can, I can definitely agree with that. And there was something that you said back there while you were discussing that. And that was the idea that even taking that beat and it might, you know, so that you can kind of take a moment and kind of process that a little bit uh, in real time that even if it makes the other person you're with uncomfortable, like you said, that's something you can't control. And, <clears throat> excuse me, that for me is definitely one of the, I would say is one of the hardest things because there's that part of me which is constantly, you know, always trying to make sure that I'm on the right, right, everything's okay with this other person. And it, it it's it's kind of that people-pleasing aspect, which it's kind of a misnomer because it's really not a people pleasing thing because if you were pleasing the other person, then you would do what works to create more communion or harmony with them, not trying to do something to appease them, which is really what it is. It's more of an appeasing, appeasing the other person to try and find the right thing to say and all those things. Um, and I think one of the hardest aspects mm. of stoicism is it doesn't matter what anybody else thinks it's are you showing up the way that you want to in the world and when you first kind of stumble on that idea it sounds incredibly self-centered it sounds incredibly selfish like you know i could give a rat's ass about how you feel about something i'm just going to do what i can do i'm going to focus on me i'm going to be myself and you can scream and yell mm -hmm. and rant and be uncomfortable all you want but that shouldn't change the way that i respond to anything or react to anything that my character is how I react. And having grown up in a community where 
it's not it was not that way at all. It was very much here are these community standards and you have to follow these. And if you don't, we're going to judge the shit out of you. And that's the way that that my life was very much growing up. Uh, plus, you know, the the emotional violence and everything that was going on in my home and physical violence as well with my, you know, my dad's, you know, internal trauma that we really didn't have. We didn't really understand until quite some time after after growing up. Um it was very, very challenging because, you know, you were, you're, everything that you were doing was because of outside. It was always worried about what, what was the look of things. As long as everything looked okay and everybody thought you were okay and you were following these standards, then everything was okay. But it really wasn't because it, like I said, it felt incredibly fake as well. And um, mm. so for me, that's been one of my, I think probably my hardest point is, like you said, just if somebody else is uncomfortable, that's up to them to deal with. There's nothing that I can do to do that. I shouldn't go out of my way to be a jerk or be mean because mm -hmm. that's not who I want to be. Not because I want to make them feel better, but because I want to act the way that I want to act and have that strength of character. And learning how to flip that around has, I think, probably been my biggest challenge in, in this whole thing. And to not do something because of what somebody else thinks about it and... <clears throat> because obviously, like you said, you can't control that. So I know that for me is a challenge. Do you find that a challenge for you as well? I mean, you know, when you see somebody's upset about something. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, and different people have different impacts on me. Um, you know, the closer someone is to me, the more important it is. And, um, you know, uh, getting back to what you were you were saying a minute ago about uh, the self-centeredness of the, you know, the concept of just really focusing on you, what something means to you and what actions you take and just like that that is the thing that you're focused on. There's what's also beautiful, I think, about Stoicism is that the, there are core tenets about goodness, about, you know, um, how like it's the, the reason why it's important that you're mindful of how you, you are showing up in the world and controlling what your mind is thinking is so that you can be a force for good, right? So that you can, um, you know, some of the other principles and values are around uh, the respect and um, around being showing up and being diligent and, and, uh, and being consistent in your actions and being consistent in how you treat people. Um, and so, yes, I, I think that, uh, I think that while there, there can be a, a, a real surface level, like appearance of self-centeredness, it is really about the own, like that's, looking at it through a lens of not really understanding what one controls. Because if you, if you think like I should be not just thinking about somebody else, but I should be concerned with trying to help them feel a different way. You don't understand what you control right now. Influence is yeah. right. And influence is important. You're understanding the edges of, of your, of one's influence, but when it comes to the practice of stoicism, influence only goes so far. Someone who is not practicing a form of this uh, is very influential and susceptible to outside stimulus, 
right? And um, and and I think the goal is to make oneself less susceptible to being influenced in a way that is outside of alignment with the you know oneself, um, and that is the struggle. And so one of the ways that that shows up is in how we feel about the way others think and see us and think about us. And it's really, like you said, it is in the moment, it is so, so difficult to do. Um, you know, just even yesterday, I was uh, having a, a pretty impactful and uh, meaningful, hard conversation with uh, a business partner. And um, there's a dynamic between the two of us that, is always, that has always existed um, that has always made it a struggle to be so closely tied to each other while at the same time, it's also created probably some of the most meaningful opportunities of growth too, uh, because all of those edges are exposed and there, you know, there's a level of accountability and a level of, um, honesty and, and, and also, you know, areas of, uh, lack of honesty, not necessarily lying, but just withholding um, because of not wanting to uh, hurt the dynamic because we're friends as well, right? So, um, so it's that's that's interesting. I think, and, and for me in that moment, it is hard for me to completely tease apart, and and um, it's not. I think the if we if we want to remove the self centeredness from it. It's not that I don't care what he feels or that I don't, I'm not trying. Uh, I, it's that I, I know that I can't control how he feels. But my goal is for my impact to be a positive on th- him or, or the other person I'm talking to. I don't control how they perceive it, internalize it, take it on. How they ultimately end up feeling, that's not for me to concern myself with. But my presence, I hope, is always a positive, has a positive uh, impact on the world around me. And that's what I strive to do is be that force for good. And, um, and then just let go of that next level of worrying. That's not my job to worry. It's my job to show up and be present and be me. The, to the most authentic version of me that I can be. So, yeah, and that's that's incredibly challenging because of that outside pressure. Yeah, and I think that we're we're acculturated to worry about what other people think, and we, I mean, which in a way is good and and bad. You know, there's that one sense that if we are doing things that are damaging to other people, then we should be in tune with that. We should be like, okay, well, this is the way maybe some of my principles or some of my ideas about how I should show up in the world aren't very helpful mm-hmm. and are actually can damage other people. You know, like, uh, you know, obviously, you know, my father is a good example of that. I think in one sense he knew that his behavior was very damaging and it was very hard for him to reconcile that with, with, with the part of him that was caring and compassionate because he wasn't just this evil monster all mm. the time. Because if he were that, then, you know, we would have, you know, I probably would have run away in high school. But it was this challenge of there's this smart, funny, kind, compassionate guy who occasionally would turn into an absolute rage monster 
it scared the living shit out of me because he was he was very strong. He was very he was a very strong guy. He grew up on a farm, baled hay. You know, at five five, hundred and forty five pounds when he was in high school, he was able mm-hmm. to bale eighty pound hay, eighty pounds of hay. You know, like it was no big thing. And that's just you know he still had the corded forearms up into his fifties. So mm-hmm. he he could be an incredibly scary man because he was so much stronger than I was. Yeah. And so reconciling that, you know, and that damage was was mm-hmm. anyway, a little bit of a tangent there. So was I was trying trying to tie back in, didn't quite work the way I was thinking about it. Yeah. But um Yeah. Well, and being a father though, of two boys, it's really fascinating to me how well, I compose myself in the world and how easy an 11-year-old can trigger me. It's the f- most fascinating thing to me, <laughs> how it's like, a, you know, I can yeah. handle so much. And then all of a sudden, this kid can push a button. I'm like, how, how, is, it, how is it that I'm so vulnerable to this child, you know? Um, and And the... I think that the reality of that is that um, in the moments when I've not shown up as my best self for my kids, uh, it, I think when I reflect on it, it, it is a complete misalignment with the authentic role that I choose to play in my, in my kid's life. And um, at the same time, there's something there that's a live nerve that gets triggered and if i don't take that beat if i don't take that breath there's can be a reaction right and so it's and again just and that reaction sometimes is just a childish reaction you know it's like a participating in his little rant back with him you know um and 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 to me i think you know there's uh there's so much as being a parent, that stoicism is so incredibly helpful in. And um, one of those things is is when it comes to expectations. Uh, expectations is just another form of lay, trying to you know lay control on something that I'm not supposed to control, right? Or I, or I don't have control over. I don't have control over outcomes. I only have control over meaning and action. That's that's it, right? I don't have control over what happens as a result of those actions or of that meaning translated into action. And so, but it's really, really, really hard uh, to, to, and to not ha- have expectations in life at all, right? Like that's just, it feels almost impossible to never have any expectations. It's really a hard thing. And what I've found is the more I pour myself into something, the harder it is to not develop expectations around that thing, right? So when it comes to business outcomes, I spend a bunch of time in my companies. When it comes to outcomes with my children, how they show up in the world, you know, I pour a lot of time and attention into my children and, and, and it, it becomes uh, myself even how I show up in the world because I, I spend a lot of energy and time on myself. And, and so the having these expectations of oneself of how my kids show up like how they present themselves in the world which is 
theirs to control, really. You know, I have influence, but that's it. Uh, my business, that's an interesting one. We could talk about that in, in a few minutes, but um, I have a lot uh, around, around, you know, business, this business side of things too. Uh, but I think that piece of it, expectations uh, and, and what's tied to expectations, how, how expectations grow and develop in oneself and then how they present themselves, um, they're almost always attached to outcomes and or results, something that ha- you know happens out in the world, not necessarily something that you do. Um, and, and so, you know, uh, they also almost always result in disappointment, right? And, uh, or heartache or anger or frustration or, you know, uh, very rarely do expectations present themselves in a positive way in one's life or have any positive, uh, result in one's life, you know? Um, so yeah, expectations is a big one when it comes to stoicism is, is how you wrestle with your expectations and how you wrestle with external expectations. Absolutely. I think that I'm kind of the opposite of you in that. Whereas with my kids, because of how I grew up um, and the way that my dad was, was so violent and the church was so controlling of things, I knew from an, uh, from an early time uh, when I was thinking about you know getting married and having kids, because as a Mormon, that's what you're supposed to do. Um, but when my kids came along, there was a part of me which was absolutely terrified. But I also knew how much I did not like the way that I was raised. And so I, I made a very clear and conscious mm-hmm. choice. I remember early on that I was going to do my best to be the best father I could. And a lot of that was making sure that in a way I understood that I needed to just teach these kids things and let them make their choices with things that I should not have mm. hard expectations on them because they are very autonomous for me. And I worked really hard to make sure that I treated them autonomously and with that kind of respect. Um, and so I, so in a way I, I, I really rarely ever got triggered with my kids because of that, because from an early age, that was something that, that I did my best to instill. And when I was married, um, one of the things that I worked with my ex on was, was very much about don't do the thing for the kid, teach the kid and let them do that and make their mistakes. And sometimes she'd be like, well, I can just do it faster. And it's like, yes, but then they're never going to learn. Well, they're not going to do it as good. Yes, true. They are not going to do it as good, but then they're going to learn how to get better at it. And so I, I really worked hard to not try and impose my expectations on my kids and and while that can often lead to them kind of drifting, what it, you know, but that's okay because they need to discover what it is that they want to do in life. I'm not the dictator of that. So I've got one kid who is very disciplined, very mm. driven, very, you know, knows what he wants and just goes out there. Whereas my other one is a bit more lackadaisical about things and just kind of finding their place and still figuring things out. And at this point, they don't have a huge direction in their life. They just moved out and they're living with friends on their own for the first time this last week, which was a huge shift. But, um, wow. And while, you know, some would say, well, I see the one who's driven, they're, they're, they're doing so much better. It's like, no, they aren't. They're just different. 
their personalities are so, so different from each other. It's, it's crazy to think that they're actually siblings. I mean, they are, and you look at them, you can see they they have some things that are very similar, but, um, but I was very big on just allowing them space to figure out who they are and do my best to support them. Now, expectations in my personal relationships, that's a whole nother story. And that's where I struggle the most with. Um, and I think a lot of that is just my own garbage of, you know, of, of needing that love, not feeling abandoned. And when those expectations aren't met, my brain goes, oh, see, they don't love you. They're abandoning you. And, and trying to turn down those voices has, has definitely been much more of a challenge. So I think it's interesting how, mm -hmm. you know, how when I see people who, who have such a hard time with their kids, I, I consider myself pretty lucky because my kids were pretty easy going on a lot of things. They weren't perfect. They definitely had their struggles and challenges and they still do. But I think because I, I was very intentional about those things because I knew how horrible my growing up, growing up experience was, I didn't want to repeat that. Mm -hmm. But being able to do that. And so that was something that I understood because I had been a kid. And so I'm like, okay, how would I want to be treated if I were in their shoes? And I was, got pretty good about that. But in my personal relationships, that's definitely much more of a challenge for me because, because of that fear, that, 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 that wanting to be loved and accepted for exactly who I was. And when I make a mistake, oh my gosh, they don't love me anymore and the end of the world. But I think when you deal with a lot of trauma, then you feel that love is transactional, that if you're not good enough, your parent doesn't love you. And so for me, working through a lot of those things has been interesting and challenging. And stoicism has definitely helped me to recognize and look at those things of like, why am I doing this? Why am I acting this way? And, and so I, I think it's interesting what we're, we're, we're each able to take away from those different things. Yeah. So you said you want to talk a bit more about stoicism in your business and how you use that to kind of guide some of the things you do. Um, I know that we had talked about this uh, about a year ago about, you know, the idea of how can a, a company be more stoic, if you will, mm -hmm. in kind of a lot of its core principles and things. And I'm, I remember that as we talked about, you know, your some of your businesses, how you're doing things, it was really interesting how you were structuring things and how how you you seem to have found a pretty good balance of how to implement those things, which is very empowering to a lot of your employees. And I want you to speak a little bit further on that. Yeah, sure. Um, so first and foremost, uh, I think it started as, as an experiment. Like stoicism is a personal philosophy, right? And, and, and it's a personal philosophy because it's focused on, uh, on primarily on, control and what is control what isn't controlled and and it and it is uh uh it's something that is an internal function that you know you and, and i think most philosophies are and you know have that have a very personal nature to them but what was fascinating to me is that um the core you know sort of the core tenets of stoicism uh they they're reflective of some of the most important elements in life that allow you to be consistent and allow you to um, create your version of success. And I think that's also very important is, is teasing apart, uh, like 
taking the time to really focus and define what success means to you in any paradigm. Don't allow, and this is a stoic process as well, don't allow the external world to define success for you. That's yours to frame. And, um, and so in that, you know, for me, uh, personally, uh, a version of a definition of success for me is creating a life that, um, has as many joyful moments in it shared with others as possible. And, and that, that what was amazing about that is it, it doesn't, there's no ties to financial success or to impact or, you know, uh, th- there is some impact pieces there, which is as many people as possible. Like I like to share it. I like to be present with others. Um, but what's created as a result of that isn't necessarily defined by metrics that, you know, the, the world is so focused on typically. When it comes to business, uh, you know, the thought experiment, the, the experiment I was really playing with and have been playing with for a, a handful of years now is um, what would it look like if a business was stoic? If a business, so basically the stoic company, that's the term that I've used with it, is what is a stoic company? And so what if the, a company adopted stoic principles um, and, uh, and as I went through that process, what I realized again, and this makes a lot of sense over the years of employing that and, and, and I can talk a little bit about how, how I've integrated it into the, the business culture and things like that. Um, it really does refocus and reemphasize the idea that it is a personal process and that at the end of the day, if I, if, if, if a company is to show up in a, in a, uh, and, and have sort of the semblance of representing stoicism out into the world, uh, the people that are comprising that company, that the company is comprised of, um, have to, like, they have to believe, feel, and have that integration. Um, and so, uh, with company value, like, so one of the first ways is to take these core stoic principles and integrate them into the company's principles, right? Like, so how, how does one bring those tenant, those core tenants into your business's principle set into the values of the company into the mission statement of the company. Um, and to emphasize the importance of reason and logic in decision making, right? Uh, encourage employees to approach the different decisions and challenges that come up with, with a clear mind and to focus on the facts at hand as opposed to the emotion and all the things tied to it, right? Like what really, what's real about this thing? Um, and then where it gets sort of like in the one-on-one piece, um, working directly with employees and, and, and team members, I don't really, we don't really associate as employees. We are on a team together creating this thing. We all have different roles. And, um, but it's encouraging them to take responsibility for their own thoughts and actions and emotions 
And that's the part where I find we get caught up the most in is are where the edges of our fear are. And, uh, and those, that fear sometimes keeps us from, um, wanting to step out, wanting to take some risk, uh, or at least understanding where risk, our risk factor is. Um, and, and so, uh, but, but really owning how one feels and everyone on the team, you know, this is, this is a process to get to the point where you feel empowered to do that. And that's something that I've learned through this is it's not as easy as just telling somebody, right? Like philosophy is something that you have to practice every day, all the time. And so how do we do that in our business? That's something that, again, it's, it's, it's by modeling and it's by practicing. And, um, so to help like teach them to let go of the external distractions and focus on what they can control. Like we, you know, the right now there's chaos in the world. There's, there's recession, there's all these layoffs. Like we're like the, the tech company, the tech industry is like, there's thousands of layoffs happening every week right now. Almost every day there's hundreds of layoffs. You know, there's just a lot going on. And then there's the, the uh, financial implications, all these different pieces and how that affects us and impacts us emotionally. First and foremost, we get to in- interpret that for ourselves. And as a company, as a company, you know, if you look at the, a, a company as an entity that's comprised of by people, well, the company itself is a form of organism, right? And, um, and so, uh, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a hive mind, right? And so the goal being that the company has the same feeling of like, okay, so we're going to acknowledge what's happening in the world, but we're not going to just react. We're not just going to be fearful. We're not going to like, in every challenge, there's an opportunity, right? The obstacle is the way. Like, and, and so it's all in how you look at it. When you see something bad, well, there's a reciprocation to that. And there's a different way to look at that. When something's scary, it can also be like the same way that your body interprets fear is how it interprets excitement, right? So, it's it's really being able to in that moment realize I'm reacting, realize that fear is part. I'm you know there's a there's a piece that's scaring me and acknowledging that out loud and then deciding why like like asking why and deciding that this can first of all empowering ourselves as a company to see that this can represent something different. And by creating that opportunity, now we can have a different conversation. What, what is possible? What can be done? What, you know, as opposed to what's happening to us, what the world, what's going on in the world and what's, you know, what's happening to us. And so, um, so that's a, that's a big piece of it. And fostering a culture of self-improvement and personal growth is really important and empowering people to, to spend that time to really feel like they can spend that time. Not just that uh, there's, and, and to take it to the next level, it's not just opportunity, it's a part of our practice as a company. It's what we do and we have it scheduled at times, right? Uh, encouraging team members to uh, regularly reflect on their values, their goals, and and is there alignment? and 
you know, like, is there room for alignment? Is there, you know, and, um, and that's another piece of it is, is it's being on, being in a company where I feel like I can explore some things that are important to me, not just show up to participate in a vision that I'm not really attached to, but I get a paycheck from. That's a different person than the person that shows up and there's excitement there because there's something that's important to them too in that. And it's not just the paycheck. It's just, there's something else to that. That's charged. That's charged to them. Something that they're really, truly excited about. And again, it's that ability to say in every moment I can make the choice that this is exciting to me and I can find the edges of that. What is exciting? And so there's, you know, empowering people to really own that piece. Um, Practicing mindfulness, being present, being, you know, in the moment together, that is, uh, that's something else. Like when we start some of our larger team sessions, there is framing exercises at the beginning. Like that's like to, to really create a container for us to be honest, to be open, for us to be here right now, looking at this thing, not stuck in what happened yesterday or what's going on tomorrow, but like here's where we are and this is what we're dealing with now. And, and take a beat, to take a moment. It's not wasting time. You're actually saving yourself a lot of time and you're creating space right at the beginning of the meeting. Have some ritual that sets the container. So important, so important. Um, and then uh, supporting you know, that positive, inclusive company culture, I think is, is important is important, right? Encouraging people to be kind, be respectful, supportive of each other, work together, you know, find our common, our commonality, our common goals together. Um, and the thing that I've found that is the hardest, and I'll, I'll <laughs> take a breath here in, in a second. The thing I've found the hardest is a company's relationship to goals. That, that is a, that is a difficult one. Um, and it's, you know, so is your own personal relationship to goals, but goals have outcomes, right? And the, the thing that is the hardest is again, to separate your expectations, to divorce it, not have, not put expectations on the outcome. And that is counterintuitive to business culture, to the business culture that I've been raised in, right? And every business book I've read about goals and about uh, financial, you know, forecasting and all of these pieces and how we look at those things, how we react to them when they happen and the market and all these pieces, like it is so divorced from the concept of, you know, in the way that we look at it and try to approach it. And again, it's really difficult. This is a constant struggle uh, to implement, but when we set goals, we, we go through healthy goal setting process. Uh, it doesn't look that different to, to other standard practice goal setting. But then the, the, our outcome in setting the goal is it empowers us to reverse engineer that thing into how can, how do I show up each day to move towards that type of outcome? And then, and, and the goal isn't to be attached to that outcome. The goal is to be making progress in that direction. And, and that, like, whether I f am feeling success, uh, again, it's not necessarily about, um, 
the expectation of the result. It's about, am I making progress? That's what makes me feel successful. Are we making progress? And if we're not making progress, then let's shift. Let's reverse engineer this again. What have we learned? How can we adapt that so that it is moving in the direction and at the speed in which we feel we need to, to, re, to reach certain outcomes. But we're not, you know, it's not a, an attachment. Uh, there's, there's not a disappointment around that uh, lack of hitting an outcome specifically or reaching a goal. The goal is simply set to lay the path that, that is moving in the direction that you want to go. Right. It's to it's to create that beacon so that you're moving that you can set the sails and and start sailing in a direction. So you can set that outcomes like this is where we would like to be, you know, and, and again, even using that language is a, is attaching um, potential future expectations of, of hitting it and landing at it. Right. But to me, I look at that goal as being just a North Star like. This is the direction we want to move. And in order to get there in a certain period of time, there is a certain set of actions that we probably need to, like, we're going to do our best to define what we should do, how we show up each day to, to get there by then. And that's what I'm attached to is the action I take today. That's what I'm attached to. If there's anything, that's what I set expectations around. If anything, it's how I show up today. And so that's why the goal is so important. It's not the goal itself. It's a reverse engineering, right? Is, a, a, is it ben, Benjamin Frank, Franklin he's, or who was it? Uh, not Franklin. Um, oh, my gosh. Uh, oh, shoot. It, it's, it's, not, uh, it's not the plan. It's the planning, right? The plan, like the plan... It's kind of like Mike Tyson said, you know, everyone has a plan when they step in the ring till they get hit in the face, right? <laughs> and, and, and so it's like the plan itself isn't the valuable part. Things change. We don't control the results. We don't control how the world reacts to our plan or what ends up happening or if a recession hits or we don't control any of those things. The value in planning, the value in setting goals is to set a course, is to define the level of action that's needed to achieve an outcome and then and then show up in that way and and then what happens happens you re, you learn from your path you learn from that process and you recalibrate what you do and that's the practice that is the only practice and when it really comes down to it that's how every business works but they feel differently about it because they're experiencing disappointment in not hitting certain financial goals by a certain time. They're experiencing that and it's causing them to take actions that are reactions that are, you know, there's like a, there's fear-based things in there, you know, all of that piece as opposed to just like what is and what do I do about that right now? What does that mean to me and what do I do? And that's, I think, you know, it's a constant practice and it's a practice as a company and, and, and what I've really had to work hard at is trying to figure out how to translate that into something where each team member has the opportunity to grow in this and really work to adopt these, uh, this philosophy, even not forcing it on them, but by the sheer nature and structure of the culture of the company, that's just how we all work and think. 
That's how all our meetings are pre-framed. The containers that are set are based on Stoic philosophy, right? And and that by its nature uh, is creating space for us to act in a more Stoic fashion as a company, I guess. There's so much more to it. I mean, there's a lot of edges to yeah. it and practical implementations at each step. But yeah, for sure, that's an overview. But I think that, yeah, I think that you definitely hit on the one of the core things for me is that we do get so attached to outcomes and our culture is, is built on that. You know, we have to have this outcome. If we don't do X, then, then we failed. Whereas you can't control that outcome. There are so many things in everything that you're doing that you absolutely have no control over. The only thing you can do is you can do your best with the process that you create. And that's it. That's really the only thing that you have any power over whatsoever. And it, it took me a long time to kind of figure that out because I, I think a lot of it for me, whenever I would set goals on things, I found it very frustrating because it, it did feel very robotic and to the point where you, if you didn't reach that goal, then somehow you were a failure. And that was it. Rather than going, well, hey, you know what? I learned so much along the way and I'm, you know, 10 times better than I was a year ago. Mm. So why is that considered a failure? Just because I didn't meet this expectation that you had. And well, I, 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 wish the, I wish there was a better term for it. And I still have, <laughs> and I've, I've thought a lot about that is like, is there a better term for that type of, of goal setting? Is there, is there, you know, a way that that can be the language that can be changed to incorporate those ideas that the process is what is more important, that you want a well, you want a well-oiled machine and with a well-oiled machine, it's going to do as good as it can do. And there's nothing else that you can do. If it, if it doesn't reach the finish line by this certain time, that's fine. It's still a well-oiled machine. It ran incredibly well. It didn't reach it in time, but it did reach it and it did it incredibly well. So yeah. is that still a failure? Well, and it's, okay, well, let's reframe failure. Is yeah. failure bad or is failure part of the process? Right. Start when you learn, when you learn to walk, uh, you fall. You fall a lot and then you fail constantly on your way to learning to walk. And then even after you've learned to walk and maybe mastered walking, you still fall sometimes. That's just part of life. Failure, I think, is, you know, like a it's a, it's 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 how we learn as humans. And and I think it's been stigmatized like failure has been stigmatized to the point where it creates so much fear of failure yeah. that we don't act like if if we instilled the kind of fear like as a business this is a huge one um do we do like we're my company my software company is in a very pivotal moment right now we are making some moves over the last um eight months we've been making some moves that are risky in a lot of ways but i i it's less risky than staying what we were and staying in a stasis, right? And in in my mind, for a lot of reasons. But then there's other pieces to that, which is, and what are we really afraid of? Like, well, are we afraid to fail? Because that fear of failure, if you laid on a child, the fear that we have in business of losing money, for instance, putting ourselves in a position to lose money or putting ourselves in a position to risk something that we've gained, right? By change, by, by trying something new. 
Um, and we laid that like it, there, you, you would never learn to walk because you'd be afraid to fall. Right. And, and, and we can't run if we never learn to walk. Like you can't make that progress if you're afraid to fail. And so, yes, like stoicism helps bring into it, like, A, it helps overcome fear, but it also helps you temper desire. That's also equally important. So not being too afraid to take action, but tempering your desire so you're not overzealous and, and, and being, you know, potentially uh, not weighing the facts, not taking into consideration what really is. And so, uh, you know, looking at those, those edges and being able to come make a decision um, with the, and accepting that, you know, you know, what was really fascinating is we were, we got really good at the kind of business that we were. And, and, and I would say really good. I wouldn't say really good. I would say we became stable in a form and it was always hard, but we found some stability in it and we understood how to make it work. Was it exciting? Not really anymore. Was it creating opportunities for something bigger or growth to happen? Not really. Was it impactful? Not really. Like we weren't doing the things that we're on this planet to, to do, at least that I felt I was on and I was being reflected in other people on our team that were like getting anxious and restless and wanting to go do and build and, you know, and so in that moment, it was like, okay, well, what am I, what are we really afraid of? What are we really afraid of? Failing? This company failing? Well, the company's 10 years old and it could fail and that would be okay. Ultimately, you know, like it's not the end of the world if the company fails, but what, but the reality of the situation is we could stay the same and fail. And even though we have found moments of stability and that's what we were experiencing was we were actually pushing the envelope of failing, staying the same. Like we're on the precipice of failing by staying the same. And, yep. and, and that was the sort of straw that broke the camera back, the, the ability to like let us stumble forward and fight through the fear of failing, doing something a little bit new, right? Was the fact that we could see some writing on the wall. And it was like, whoa, if we stay doing this, we're, it's, we're going to fail. Um, yeah. And so just really internalizing that and just our relationship to failure is also a choice we get to make. And we can either choose to like fail fast, fail, uh, you know, like that failure is not something that I'm ashamed of. Failure is, is, a, is a representation of me trying something that I haven't mastered me trying to create something, me trying to do something and trying it in a way that pushed my abilities and I failed, but maybe I didn't fail this next, maybe I'm not going to fail next time, you know, or, or as Edison said, I, you know, I know, uh, you know, 10,000 ways not to make a light bulb, right? That that's like, that was his statement, you know? And like, I, I, I know all the ways not to make a light bulb because he failed so many times. But then, then the light bulb, right? And I think that that's, that's what's important here is uh, fear, 
fear of failure is a, a, a stigma that we've been trained, um, has been ingrained in us and is probably the thing that keeps us from showing up and making progress more than anything else in the world. And to, to wrap our heads around accepting the concept of failure and saying that, you know, and yeah, you can, I mean, there's some wisdom in being able to temper failure, but, um, do you know who Rick Rubin is? The, the producer, uh, music producer. I mean, he's, okay. yeah. I know the name. I can't think of who he's produced though. I've, I've definitely heard of him. He's produced everybody basically. Mm-hmm. Like he, you know, he, uh, early on like Beastie Boys and, but like every, everybody he's like at some point and he's kind of like, uh, like guru producer. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but his whole process, it has l- zero to do with what the world expects. It has everything to do with, he, like, he's not even a musician. He's, but when you show up and work with Rick, what you get is you get him present, focused, and his commitment to this thing isn't going out until you're happy with it and I'm happy with it. And when we're stoked by it, that's when it goes. But if you're happy with it, I'm not happy. We're going to work at it some more. And if I'm happy with it and you're not happy, we're going to work at it some more. But like, it's about creating something that we are excited about. And it may in the, we can't control how the world reacts to it, but we can control how we feel about it. That's what we get to control when we create something new, how we feel about it. And when you're like translating that into business, it's like, what is the experience we want to bring into the world? We get to create that and we get to make it as awesome as we want it to be. How the world reacts to it, we don't control, right? But, but if we really focus on making it the best thing we can make it, we give it the best chance, at being at, at having an impact on the world that you know is a positive one, and that hope maybe the world shows up in a way that is rewarding, but we don't control that one way or the other. But how sucky is it to work really hard and put yourself into something that you that because that you think that the world is going to react in a certain way to it, so that's how you shape it, and then the world doesn't react that way, right? That is a sh- that is a shitty feeling. I don't know if that's a, a cussing a lot. I'm so sorry if I just. <laughs> it's fine. No but worries. that is a bad feeling to really yeah. pour yourself into something um, and, and do it in a way that because because you're trying to create some, an expectation that somebody else has, and it doesn't happen, and then you just that's a whole wholly different experience than creating something that you believe in, that you are excited about, that you are proud of that you are happy with. And, um, and then whether the world adopts it or not, that was an experience you got to have and got to create. That's something you got to, you get to feel good about no matter the reaction that the world has. And that's why I think like experience shaping it, like we, that's all that we control is what something means and what actions we take and what we pour ourselves into. That's what we control. So why try to create something that we don't control, which is create a feeling and expectation of how somebody else wants something. That's really hard to do, right? So anyhow, I just 
<laughs> this is this no, is obviously dude. I have a lot of passion around this stuff. Yeah, uh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I I think for me that that kind of fits with something I realized many many years ago is that the world doesn't need more of the same. That that people who throw monkey wrenches into the system not not to destroy a system or to cause it to have issues, although at times that's important. But the real change for good that happens in the world are by the people who say, I know the world wants X, I don't care. You're getting Z. Um, you know, you look at all of the great agents of change, Martin Luther King Jr., Gandhi, I mean, Jesus Christ as an example. I mean, you go on and on and on, you list all of these people, they decided the status quo wasn't, wasn't working. What the world wanted wasn't working. And they said, I'm going to put something else out there that is so much better. And that right there is an incredible, you know, force for change of good because they said, no, the status quo doesn't work anymore. And we need to make sure that, you know, because they had, they had that vision of things. And, and I think that too much of the world is built on trying to keep everybody into a place of conformity. And it's, it's very much about trying to control things. And I mean, we see that in China, for example. Mm. China is, there's a lot of power in having a, a unified, you know, control at the top. But when you have to shore up that thing all the time, it makes it incredibly brittle. Mm. And it also makes it incredibly uninnovative because you stifle anybody who might do anything innovative. The more you crack down on people who do things that you don't like, the more you destroy creativity within your, within your, your culture. And as much as Xi Jinping really likes to say, you know, the, look, look at the China miracle, this is what we're doing. You make something incredibly brittle when you do it like that because anything that stands out that could be a force for changing for good, you squash. And that could be the thing, that could be the person, that could be the idea that takes your country from being pretty good or your culture from being pretty good to something absolutely amazing. But because of fear and that need for control, I mean, I wonder how many creative ideas have been squashed in totalitarian countries simply because of fear. Mm -hmm. Yeah, You know, the, their country could be amazing. That could, you know, that one person that they squashed down, that creative group that they squashed down could have had some world-changing technology that they were working on, but because it didn't fit within these strict parameters of what the people in charge want, it got squashed. And so, you know, the world loses out from those things. And I think there needs to be a balance because you can't have anarchy for sure. Mm -hmm. but, but finding that balance is, is, is challenging. And I think that People who are afraid tend to err on the side of controlling too hard and trying to control too much. And it, for me, it's, it's really fascinating. I, you know, I, I can't remember what I, what I was doing, but I just had this like aha moment years ago where I was like, oh my gosh, people like Gandhi and other things like that were so important because they, they changed the direction of the world in, in, in fairly dramatic ways. And what, and what Gandhi did was a very simple thing. He showed the British their inhumanity to their fellow humans. Mm -hmm. He just basically held up a mirror to the British and say, you think you are so morally superior? Here's who you really are. And the British finally went, oh, wow, we are not as great as we thought we were. And the rest of the world kind of shamed Britain into 
you know, relinquishing control of India and, and changing their outlook on things. And I, I, to me, that was just a very fascinating, like I said, I don't remember if I was reading something or watching a movie or I don't know, but it was just this idea of, of people throwing a monkey wrench in the system is the only, sometimes the only way that, that change happens in the world. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you know, the world will try to continue on as it is. Well, I think you touched on something too, the, the concept of, you know, there are multiple ways to see a vision through, right? Someone who's strong, who has a vision for something and believes in it wholeheartedly. Um, we have a tendency as a culture uh, over time there's one path, one path that stood out very strongly, and that is a, tyrann- a tyrannical path, right? There's a vision, and there's forcing that vision and forcing conformity to that vision. And to be totally honest, I would say that's how 90% of the business culture is. It's tyrannical. There's a there's a vision. There's somebody who owns it, and 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 basically, if you conform, you get paid. If you don't, you get fired, right? You like there's there's that. It's business is basically tyrannical as well. Let's be real, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, yeah um, I can agree with that. You fall in line. You don't get to have your own ideas necessarily. And again, I'm saying I'm I'm grossly overgeneralizing, but there's a yes. right. So like, you don't get to have your own ideas. You have to adopt the ideas of the company as being the thing that you're moving towards. You don't get to have you know. A re- there's a great book, um, Matthew Barzun. Uh, it's called The Power of Giving Away Power. Have you have you read that book? I have not. It's the first time I've heard of it. Well, I will send it to you. I would love to. I love I love books. Love giving away books. And you've turned me on some really great books too. So uh, I will. I'll make sure to put that in the show notes for this. So yeah, the power of giving away power, and um, and it's you know it's this philosophy and methodology that is again having a big vision, having a. Uh, uh, a, a powerful outcome, and being somebody who is a force for good, as somebody who's a change maker. And it's a different way of going about it that isn't, it's the power of us together as a power, uh, as opposed to my ideas and conformity, right? As opposed to that tyrannical approach. Um, and, and there's a, you know, like there's this, there's this, uh, there's, there's a lot of great stories in it, but there's one that's really fantastic about, um, well, I'll, 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 I'm not going to get in. That's a, that's a gross divergence there, but that just the idea of <laughs> doing things together and truly like there's inspiring. This is what all of those leaders that you mentioned did, right? They inspired others to show up differently and contribute in their way to helping move that cause mission forward. Um, they weren't dictators in their movements. Right. Um, and, and so there's something that is so, so much more powerful. Like, uh, if you look at the dictatorships, they end when that person ends. Yes. These other movements, these other missions don't end. They, they don't end when that person is not part of it anymore. Right. Yeah. Um, it's, it's the power of the idea that matters. It's not the person. That's the person right. is just a vessel for delivering the idea and expressing it for the time that they're there. But it's that idea that moves things forward. And and at the core of it, I think that uh, 
again, stoicism plays a big role in that because, because uh, the tyrant is trying to control all of the paradigm. Yeah, he's trying to control things that he can't. That, well, that aren't theirs to control. And sometimes yeah. they are so overbearing that there's, there is a, uh, there's basically a uh, false control that presents itself, right? Um, and, and, but it's, like you said, very fragile form of control because at any point that can be derailed, at any point uh, something can rise up and break that virtual control that you have uh, and, and any adversity can shatter it, you know? Um, and so when, but in this other form of growth, of vision um, building and, and it's, it's much less fragile because it's, there's not one person holding it. Right. Yeah, there's not a single point of failure. That's right. That's right. So. Um, it's a beautiful thing, and uh, and and it is like it's about me realizing that all I control is my thoughts and my actions, and not trying to control the others, but showing up in a certain way. And if that's something that inspires others to own that themselves, and part and show up, in a, you know, and we can find some alignment in how I shape things, how I see the world, and how I show up as a reaction to that, or as an as a decided action to that, then there's, you know, that, that finding those other people who have share that for themselves and make those decisions for themselves and take ownership of that. That's where that power is derived. Awesome. So there's this great book that I've read, I've been reading and I, I listened to the audio book all the way through. It's called existential kink. And it sounds like the and, it, and the thing is it it, it references kink you know, in very tangentially. It, she mm -hmm. she talks about it a little bit, but it's not like a, a it's not like a big sexual book or anything like that. It's so the title is very productive, but what she has to say in there isn't. And the idea is it's very much a radical acceptance kind of thing. And I really really appreciate the way that she does that. And it's this idea that. Um, it's this idea of a cultivating awareness by truly accepting yourself for exactly what you are and what you do. One of the things she talks about in there is you don't have to have a reason to do anything in your life. There's no reason why you have to do or do not or don't do anything. You can simply do it because you want to. That's it. You do not have to justify anything. And there is a lot of power with that. And it's incredibly scary to a lot of people. Because you are allowed to do anything you want in your life. Now, you can't choose the consequences. Right. But there's, you are allowed to do anything and everything right. that you want. Yes. And, and that's, that's so scary for people. They're like, well, uh -huh. I just can't walk out on my marriage. Yes, you can. You yeah, actually can. You can. Yeah. You can, you know, you can do anything you want to in life. You can't control the consequences for those actions. But you are allowed to do anything you want. And so is everybody else. Yeah. And once you recognize that... You start, you stop, and that's where uh, the idea of expectations starts to fall apart because when you put expectations, expectations on somebody else, you are trying to control what they're doing. You are trying to make it so that they can't do what it is that they want to do, or you have some idea that you have some control over that. 
So and, uh, here's a question then. How do you deal, how do you, how does one deal with in that moment in uh, make, you know, like owning that and really owning that power? Um, if there is a repercussion that is highly likely that you, that you, you know, it's like, this is some, this isn't, this is a thing you really feel like you need to do. And there's a repercussion that is highly likely, even though you can't control the outcome and maybe that's not going to happen, like uh, that you really want to avoid. Like there's a predicament there, right? It is. Yes, absolutely. It is. It's incredible. This is when you get the scales out and you feel what's, what is, what is a higher, what's more important to you, right? Like that, that's really the, so hard. Hmm. Well, I, I didn't mean to be distracted, but I had to like <laughs> take action. So I just got the, got the audio book. So yeah, it's, it's really great. And she, the author actually reads it and she's, there's just some great things in there. She has this one part. It's like seven axioms of, of, of existential kink. And probably my favorite in there is having is evidence of wanting. What you have mm-hmm. in your life, you have because it's what you truly want, whether you like, want to admit that or not. And she's the one where I got that Jung quote of until you make the con- unconscious conscious, it will rule your life and you will call it fate. And that's that whole idea. You have these things in your life and you continue to have these things in your life because in some level, on some level, it's exactly what you want. And just if you can accept that and you can say, I want this for some reason. It may not be healthy for me. It may be terrible for me. It may be sexually damaging and make me miserable, but in some way I want it. Mm-hmm. Because if you didn't, you wouldn't do those things that get you that same result every single time. Yeah. And so for me, that's where I, you know, it helped me to kind of stop and take a look back of like, okay, when I get upset and lose my shit over things, what is it that, you know, because that happens reoccurringly, I'm getting what I want, so because that's what I have. So yeah. why do I want that? And so trying to dig into that a little bit deeper is 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 there because obviously I'm getting something from it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's not healthy mm-hmm. and it's not giving me the end result that I want. I can't control the consequence because really, with the consequences I want are over here, and I keep getting these over here. So, and that's and that's kind of the the thing is that. You can do whatever you want, but you can't control those consequences. And, yeah. but then I also like that, like I said, one of her other things is there's no reason, you don't have to have a reason to do anything. You can just yeah, do Yeah, that's it. freeing. That is very freeing. You don't need to excuse anything, right? Yeah. And that's, hmm. that fits along with the whole idea of, you know, where Epictetus says, when you stop blaming other people, that shows improvement. When you stop blaming yourself, that shows growth. When you stop blaming anybody, that shows enlightenment. Yeah. And yep. it took me a long time to really understand that because I was just like, well, that doesn't make any sense because, I mean, somebody did something, so somebody's definitely to blame. And it's like, why do we need blame? Yeah. And that's really what he's getting at is there's no blame. Things just happen because they happen. They happen because of this thing happened and that's a consequence of it. That's it. Well, and, and if you think about what is blame attached to blame is attached to an outcome. Yeah. And 
the reality is, is no one controls, no one solely controls an outcome. Exactly. And definitely no one is responsible for what that outcome means to you. Yes. But you. Yes. And so blame really is a missed expectation. Mm-hmm. I wanted this. It didn't happen because you did X. Yep. And that's, or I did X. So I'm, I'm to blame for that. And it's like, well, no, it's just you had an expectation and it didn't come true. It didn't get fulfilled. So that's the problem with blame is that it's just a missed expectation. Yeah. Yep. And it took, it took me a while to kind of figure that out. I was like, oh, that's really what he's saying. So it's our perspective. There's somebody to blame because we thought something should happen this way. Mm-hmm. And it didn't happen that way. So therefore, there's, we have to f- excuse it, scapegoat it, whatever you want to call it. Yep. So, yep. Wow. That's awesome. Well, um, how do we wrap this thing up? Because uh, my, I'm getting hit up. My son is yeah. hitting me up. <laughs> Actually, let's just end with a very simple question. Maybe do a kind of a five minute thing on. Um, and this was a, a question that I'm stealing from Tanner from our, our, our conversation about a week and a half ago. Um, let's see if I can find that. Oh, here we go. What's one aspect of stoicism that once you kind of got a little bit deeper into it, that you got wrong when you first started, but now you understand it much more deeply and fully, and it almost seemed like it's kind of the opposite? Hmm. Wow. <laughs> I think... Um... I'm going to take a stab at this. We'll see. We'll see where it ends up. So for me, um, I think the paradigm that I've just struggled with in general in life, the most is the paradigm of control. And I even think that, uh, the idea of, of how, um, Stoicism deals with control. My interpretation of that initially was uh, that, you know, again, I grabbed onto the concept that I am in control. And I think that, you know, when it comes to controlling what I feel and what I think and how I frame something, I actually think that that still is a misnomer that I still like, there's so much dynamic and paradigm to assigning meaning and, and taking my life's experience Mm -hmm. from a conscious standpoint and from a subconscious standpoint and from a, where my physical body is and whatever other elements spiritual or otherwise are playing a part in how I construct meaning, um, that I'm doing my best, but the idea of control, I think is still something that is a misnomer in the way that I interpret it. Right? Like, Control being this sort of almighty piece, this 
like I control my like how this thing is framed and means to me that I fool myself sometimes into thinking I actually control it as opposed to I'm doing my best with, you know, like interpretation and assigning meaning and living into that in every moment. And I think that the, what I found if it, if the, if it is the opposite of where I initially started, it's more of an, it's more along this line of blame. Like we were talking a minute ago, this idea of letting go and, um, working through it and allowing myself, giving myself some grace with, uh, you know, I, I will assign, I'll do my best with what I have to work with. And I'm actually only marginally, this is something I am more in control of than anything else, but I still from a, the way that I've always perceived control being a very conscious thing. Um, There's so many dynamics at play that my conscious mind is not in control of, even when it comes to a meaning I assign. So that paradigm there is something that I still struggle with, right? And that's also why I think this idea of fully living into these principles and uh, all the time consistently, it's just not something I've found possible at this time, I've continued to work at it every day. I have tooling and process and practice in my life that helps empower me to work at it every day. Uh, but I still fall prey to myself. I still fall. And, and the more I lean into this paradigm of control, the more I like try to own controlling my emotions and my feeling. Um, the more at times I feel like I'm just fooling myself. So I think that it's the best we have to work with and that from a accessibility standpoint, it's a great, it's a great framework to think through. Mm -hmm. But I also think that it's part of the process too. It's not the end. It's, it's, it's what is being shared because what we know of as Stoicism, as a philosophy, is pe- different people who have been practitioners, but practitioners, practitioners, <laughs> I'm inventing words now, practitioners, um, in their process sharing, right? So, like, we, and so the idea of taking it and this is the end all be all answer. No, it's them in their process, sharing their process, where they're at with it and using the words that they're that are meaningful to them and helping them interpret it. Right. So I think that for me, if I were to break it down, I don't want to take the power out of it and make it an impotent philosophy by any means, because it is so powerful to really take as much ownership as you can over it. But I think this sense of control, I think control is the thing that is the is probably the the thing that is uh the role and the concept and idea of control in my life i really glommed onto it because of control felt power, like something i needed and it's the thing that i think is the opposite of what actually is in practice like the the better i get at letting go of control and just doing the best i can in this moment with what i have to work with and 
understanding that the part that I'm playing right now, the in, in the uh, the part that I can have the biggest impact on is this, and then what I do with that. That is great, but trying to can even control that, like I've proven myself, I can't even control this, mm-hmm. right? Yep. I can just work at it and influence it. So, yeah, yeah, I can definitely understand that. It's like the people who get into stoicism, and I've seen this on uh, the Reddit stoicism thread or uh, group, where people get up there and saying, you know, I've I love this. It helped me to deal with my emotions better. But now I feel like I, I don't really feel much of anything. And it's like, well, that's not what stoicism is about. It's not the elimination of emotion. It's about feeling the feelings all the way through because we're humans. That's, that's what we do. we got to feel those feelings. It's about the choices you make, what you do with those feelings. Because I think a lot of people get into it because they have these overwhelming emotions a lot of the times, whether that's anger or fear or whatever, and they're trying to control those emotions. And it's, it's a recognition that you can't control the emotions that are there. You're going to feel them because it's a physiological response. Mm-hmm. And so stop trying to control the emotions, but control the process of what those emotions mean to you what those, how those emotions make you act or react as best you can. Like you said, you're never going to be fully 100% in control of that because there's so many little factors, the conscious, the unconscious, the physiological. And so the best that you can do is kind of like, uh, kind of like in a canoe. You've got a paddle. You can steer where you're going, but you can't control the river. You can steer yeah. where the canoe goes, but you aren't controlling the canoe. You can't go, canoe go here because you've got the river going on underneath and you've got rocks and you've got maybe wind going on. You've got all kinds of things going on. So what you've got is an oar that can help kind of nudge things in a particular way and help you move in the direction you want to go. That's really not a lot of control. It's just, that's about as much as you can control. That's kind of the way that I see it. Yeah, I love that idea of process. Like you like if there is something I control in this from a from a um conscious standpoint, it's that I have a process I work through at working on what something means to me. And I'm realizing like through this even this conversation that I don't actually control what something means to me, but I have a process to work through meaning. And through that, I get to make some conscious decisions, but I, but even still, I, what, what I guess the, I think you probably have shared this with me too, like the struggle of, um, even when I have this declaration of what something means to me, sometimes there's still a gut level feeling that is flies in the face of that. There's frustration. There's this trigger. There is still a nerve there. Right. And I think that that's because there's a part that uh, our conscious isn't in control of. That's the subconscious. That's or you know what? There's a lot of different layers to that, right? Depending on how one feels spiritually or uh, soul or uh, otherwise, right? All these different paradigms. But if we just look at it, conscious and subconscious, like you don't control that from a conscious level. You have to work with that through. Uh, experience through emotion through you know like sitting with it being in it 
and allowing it to be. You can't smother pain. You know, you can't squash it and put it out by smothering it. You have to just sit with it and let it be and, and, and have a process. You can control the process you work through. And I really appreciate you sharing that piece. That really lands for me. Um, and helps me kind of like wrap my head around what is it that I actually actively am doing. It's not controlling the way I feel. It's it's going through a process so I can work through how I feel. Yeah. Yeah. When I got divorced, I remember that I just I had this physiological pain right in the center of my chest where the solar plexus is. And it just sat there. I mean, it was just grief. And it was a physical manifestation of grief. I felt it every day when I woke mm-hmm. up for about two months. And... I didn't try to turn that off. I just acknowledged it and just sat with it. And it was really, really hard. And I remember it, it, it influenced a lot of things. My boss at the time said I was kind of an asshole at work, but you know, they understood I was going through a lot. And then after about two months, within about a week's time, like every day, it just got a little bit softer, a little bit softer, and then it was gone. And it was just that whatever needed to happen, that unconscious had to work through that. And I found that the more I tried to control that and not feel that way, the harder it resisted and the longer it stayed around, that the more I just sat with it. I'm like, yep, this is how I'm feeling. And that grief is just going to sit there for a while. And it just got a little bit less every single day. Well, and, and there, there there is power in the process of like the, the concept of where stoicism goes with it as far as the decision, the, the conscious decisions that you make. And that is that um, to like your, the, the subconscious, the emotion, the deeply integrated part of yourself that doesn't communicate in words, right? Um, it is like the way you feel is impacted words words are very powerful but you can't just dictate through language but repetition language helps impact and influence feeling and over time reframing things differently for yourself working through that reframing working through that learning where that stems from talking through that reframing continually re re uh um Reinvesting and re, uh, I guess, sup- building more support, uh, it that it does speak to your unconscious mind, right? And this is why, like, we we always have heard, like, you know, outside influence, the five people that you spend the most time with, they're, you know, like, you are the like net average of the five people you spend the most time. It's it's because that repetition is where your subconscious is affected it's it's affected through repetition and your conscious mind is like that's why it's a constant struggle if if you don't stay at it you it's hard to make progress because that integration happens over time so having a process and working through that process that is the thing that is the most important and that's why it's a philosophy right it's something that is like, it's a guiding philosophy. It's something that it's a tool that you can use to help work through this. And it takes time and it's not a perfect art. It's not a belief system. It's a tool. And the more you use it, the, you know, the, the more impact it can have. Yeah, definitely. I agree with that. 
All right. Well, we've definitely taken up quite a bit of time here, so I'm going <laughs> to get us signed off here. But I really appreciate it. So I've missed chatting with you. I, I enjoy our chats every single time, and I know that we could probably talk for another two or three hours and uh, have a good old time. But there are other needs and demands that, that need to be taken care of. So. But I really appreciate, appreciate you, Eric. Yeah. Thank you. No, Thanks what you, for what you bring to the space, myself personally, and uh, and 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 your community. It's it's very, um, it's just a gift. So thank you. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate it. Hello, friends. Thanks for joining me today on this conversation with Trevor Yarish. I know this is definitely longer than most of my episodes are. So if you're listening to this and got to the end of it, I appreciate you listening all the way through. Um, Trevor's really interesting and, and just a very enjoyable person. And I really enjoy his perspective on things. And I hope that you got something from this conversation. As always, be good to yourself, be good to others, and thanks for listening.